So we've reached 11 and 12 chapters from the book, and these are on masculinity and marriage. Now, this entire course is on masculinity, so we're not gonna spend a lot of time on the masculinity portion, though we're gonna go to a few things that I wanna hammer home as a part of the overall course. One of the points I wanna make is that pride and lust demasculinize a person. When you are filled with lust and pride, the problem is you end up making idols that you need to feed, and those things that are masculine traits don't feed those idols. In other words, if you're filled with pride and you're filled with this idea that you're more important, and being, by the way, being filled with pride doesn't necessarily mean feeling you're more important. It means thinking of yourself all the time. As C.S. Lewis said, it's, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility, pride would be the opposite. And so when you're convinced that you are the most important person in the room, or at least you're obsessed with self, then you are not going to do the courageous thing as we saw in the last episode. But pride will always make a man less manly. And that doesn't mean that a guy doesn't come across as more gruff. It may be a defense mechanism. It doesn't mean that a guy isn't insensitive and toxic, as we would say. He might be very, you know, hunter and going out and shooting things. But as we've seen, that's not masculinity. We've seen a masculinity is a care and a love for those in our charge. We will do whatever it takes to care for those that God has put within our charge. Whether we're single or married, we will do what we need to do to provide for, protect, uh, care for the oppressed, seek justice, plead the widow's cause, all those things. And so pride tends to make us not do those things because we think highly of ourselves. Lust is the same. Lust becomes a God. We will do whatever it takes to satisfy our fleshly desires through our eyes, through our mind, however we do it, we end up not standing for the things that masculinity requires that we do, the truth, because we're obsessed with sexual perversion, lust, and those are the things that will demasculize us. Now, that comes in because we've swallowed the evolutionary lie. Science now knows that evolution didn't happen. I encourage you to check out one of Stephen Meyer's books. They're excellent. And um, he shows clearly that evolution is not a thing anymore. And scientists know this, they just don't know where else to go, so they're not saying it. But that evolutionary mindset has made its way into all civilization, including the church, including the ways that we think. You may not believe in evolution at all, but there's a part of us that has this arrogance that somehow we're better than we were. And we're simply not. I mean, you, the collection of intelligence that you had making the Constitution was unbelievable. Like uh, President Kennedy said one day when he was throwing a dinner of the biggest minds in the world. And he said, gentlemen, today gathered in this room is the highest collection of IQ that's ever been here since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. You know, we have this intellect capability. We are not smarter now than we were. And you think about people coming up with calculus or figuring out the, the solar system or the universe or the age of the earth without computers, just using math. It's unbelievable what people accomplished before. Physically, it's the same thing. When you look at what Alexander the Great's army accomplished, they went, uh, I can't remember how many miles now it's in the book, a uh, hundred and some miles in, in eight days to go fight the Persians. I mean, on in sandals, carrying all their equipment with no water. It's unbelievable what people did. So this idea that we're somehow better today, why is that important? Because it affects how we read scripture. We tend to read scripture through American culture or Western culture ideas and a and filter the scriptures through there and go, well, you know, they weren't as smart back then, so let me put my own intellect onto what I think I'm reading. Don't do that. God's word says what God's word says. It says exactly what the creator of the universe wanted us to see. And those people who wrote the Bible 
all the way back to Job, the first book of the Bible ever written, they were not less smart than we were. In fact, I could make a compelling argument. They were smarter than we are now. They didn't have the genetic defects and whatnot that we have now. So, so let us not swallow Satan's lie that somehow we're smarter than that. I bring all that back to what we started with, which is we tend to justify our lust and our pride by thinking that we're smarter than the Bible is as we read it. And that demasculinizes us, and that is causing a problem throughout the church today. So remember, all that said, to try to counter the lies of Satan, because he has a goal. He wants to, he wants to get in the way of our relationship with each other and with God, as we've talked about. The most basic way he can do that is through gender roles. So we know, and we're, we're reviewing just a little bit, but God created the universe and he created mankind and he said three things. I created male and female. He created mankind as male and female and only male and female. I created male and female so that they can come together as one flesh through marriage. A man, a woman as one through marriage. Only a man and a woman as one through marriage. Thirdly, so that they can multiply and fill the earth. Those are the foundational building blocks. So we now have to know who we are as men. And God gave the, his directions to Adam. He didn't give them to Adam and Eve. He gave them to Adam. And Adam was responsible to give them to Eve. Adam was responsible for when they ate the fruit. When Eve ate the fruit, she condemned herself. When Adam ate the fruit, he condemned all of mankind because he was the one God told and held responsible. And that's why Christ was the second Adam, because he ended what the first Adam did. So as we see in 1 Corinthians, the Bible says that God the Father is the head of God the Son, and God the Son is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. Now, man woman in the Greek can be translated husband and wife, and so he's there giving the, the order not of all creation, all men are not over all women, but the husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean? It means he's accountable for the relationship. It doesn't mean that he's at fault. And so, as we talk about in the book, a man is responsible for his marriage and his family, but that doesn't mean that everything is his choice. I mean, your kids can go awry. I'll give an example there of a good friend of mine whose wife left him. If you've done everything godly that you can, then you're accountable for your marriage, but you're not at fault for your marriage. Do all you can to serve your family the way the Lord has given you to do that in leadership, in loving servant leadership, but strong leadership, decisive leadership. One of the attributes of being a man is being decisive. Um, but also sometimes people may not decide to follow you. All you can do is clear the way for them to follow. If they choose not to follow, that that's on them. But you need to worry about you and you for being the leader that you need to be. And so lastly, on this little section, what we want to talk about is the decline of masculinity that we've seen. And I, I bring in scripture to show this a little bit. But the first thing we see in the decline of masculinity is passivity. Now, I think we've seen that quite a bit. But when you're indecisive, when you refuse to be proactive, when you refuse to step forward and take on the issues that they are, but you'd rather sit in your armchair and watch football and complain, that's passivity. A man is proactive. What's happening? Where are we going? As Coach McCartney used to tell me all the time, who are we? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And in every aspect of life, be it your business, your family, your walk with Christ, those are great questions to ask. Who are we? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? You as the man are responsible for that, for the people who are in your charge. Passivity is the step, first step out of four of the decline of masculinity. Number two, we have macho-ness, which again comes from pride. 
Uh, you could call that uh, male chauvinism, however you want to put it. It's masculinity gone awry. It's masculinity that's all about the outward rather than the heart. So I don't need to describe macho-ness to most of you. You know what I mean. It's the guy who always has the better story, the guy who's louder, the guy who, who tells jokes about women that are demeaning to women. Um, all that kind of stuff. The guy who does not elevate and, and, and talk about the equality of women as our co-heirs in Jesus Christ, equal co-heirs, but rather uh, tries to use his masculinity, his physical strength to come off better, however that may be. So you have passivity number one, macho-ness number two. I think a lot of macho guys would be surprised that I said macho-ness is less masculine passivity, but I do believe they go hand in hand passivity and then macho-ness. Third, we have perversion and greed. So once you've gone through passivity and now macho-ness, now you're where I think culture is today. It's perverse and it's greedy. I was asked on a TV interview once, uh, what was the biggest problem facing the church today? And I said greed, and they were shocked. They thought I'd say pornography or something else. I thought, you know, greed is one the one that overcomes all of those. First Corinthians chapter 5 says a greedy person have nothing to do with such a person. Talking about the church. 1 Corinthians 6 says a greedy person will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Greed is a major sin and a major problem. And it is a an issue of as your masculinity declines, as you walk away from the Lord, as you give in to passivity, not being proactive about seeking justice and pleading the widow's cause. And then as you get into a sense of macho-ness that comes from pride, now you've gotten the third level down. Perversion and greed filled all the time with how can I get more money and how can I get more sex? And neither one of those is ever fulfilling which leads to resentment and anger. And then the number four, we get to complacency. We get to the point where you realize nothing seems to satisfy. And suddenly you can watch massive injustice happen in front of you and you just don't do anything about it. And I tell you, I see our culture and maybe you do too, really going from number three to number four as we slid down to a lack of masculinity in our culture. We're now at a point where we see gross injustices being done we see horrible atrocities being done. We see things being talked to our kids everywhere. Where are the men? Who's standing up? I think we're really at a point of complacency now. Now on that note, which isn't very exciting, let's go over to marriage because I think that's going to be really helpful for us. Christ is the example of what a marriage is, right? The church is the bride of Christ, not the whole church. I argue in a different book, those who are on the way to sanctification and holy are the bride of Christ. But either way, Christ gave his life for the church. He laid down his life for his bride. And what will he do someday? Come back and get his bride and she will co-reign with him. Okay, so we see many of the visuals that we've gotten in scripture that, that play out from history. So back in the day in Israel, a man would propose to a woman and then he would go back to his town and he would prepare a place for her. Generally, what he would, how he would do that is he would add a, a room onto his father's house. So family was very important in Israel and people didn't have all their homes like we do. The man would go back and build a room for her on his father's house. And she wouldn't know when he's coming back. They didn't have a way of communicating. And then at the appointed time when the room was ready for his bride, he would come back with all of his friends and they would blow the trumpet. And when the trumpets blew, everyone knew, ah, the bridegroom has come for his bride. And they would march down the street and he would claim his bride and there would be feasting and there would be a great wedding feast of the bride. And then when that wedding feast was done, he would take her back to the home he had prepared for her. You, you see the scriptural, all the scripture that comes in right there. This is the idea of marriage for us. And as we talk about 
Jesus being the perfect husband, how he treats his church, the bride, how is it that we can look at this? And look, this is for men about men. So when we talk about marriage, we would not be honest if we weren't talking about sex. And so let's talk about a few things about sex. Because if there's ever a complaint I get from men about marriage, it's sex. I mean, they're the top three complaints in breakup marriages are sex, in-laws, and money. Those three things, I think it's in that order, um, are what breakup marriages. So it's important for men to understand sex better. A couple things about that. So for you as a man, in order for you to have a sex drive, you have to have certain needs met. So if you are starving to death, if you were freezing to death, you would not be interested in sex, right? If you, if you hadn't eaten in 30 days and you had a naked woman here and a roast beef over here, you're going for the roast beef. So you have to have certain needs met and then sex would kick in after that. Women are the same. There's just a few more needs they need to have met. Women need to feel safe. They need to feel secure. They need to feel cherished. Now, when we're talking about, obviously there's dysfunction and sex and all this stuff. So this doesn't apply to every person, but in a healthy human being with a healthy psyche, these are the cases. And so for you in your marriage, which is the only appropriate place for sex is within marriage. Um, well, let me, let me just take a quick diversion there. The two become one flesh. And this is why it's so important. It's an egregious sin for you to be becoming one with someone who you have not committed to for life. And so I want to make sure that as you watch this, and I know a lot of people are watching this who are having sex outside of marriage, it is unacceptable. And that's a sin you're going to need to deal with. And everyone's got their own thing. And you may have had a girlfriend you've been dating for two years. How you deal with that is between you and the Lord. But I want to make sure I emphasize sex is, is for marriage only. Now in your marriage, are you making your wife feel cherished? Is she feeling safe? Is she feeling secure? The financial decisions that you made, are you in debt? Do you have a spending problem? Do you have a pornography problem? Women want to know, are you going to be there when things go down, when the chips hit the fan? Because the, the reality of it is, is that the older people get, the less attractive women get and the more attractive men get. Why? Because men value looks and the older a woman gets, the less she has the looks. Women value safety, security, wisdom. So what, what are women attracted to? They're attracted to older men who have those things, who are not running around looking for sex everywhere, but they have a lot more to offer in those regards. So for a woman in a marriage, she wants to know when we're 60 and we've made a bunch of money and you have the gray hair and now you have the 30 somethings checking you out, are you still going to be there? Are you going to be with me forever? That will have a tremendous effect on her libido. So I would tell you as men, sometimes men get sex isn't there the way they wish and they get pouty and, and angry or whatever they do. Believe me, none of those things are helping to fix the situation. I think if your wife isn't attracted to you, you need to ask why. And, and I find most of the time it's because she doesn't respect you. The woman who respects her husband generally has a libido equal to her husband in, in general regards. Also bear in mind that women's bodies are changing all the time. See, we as men, our bodies changed once called puberty and that was all good. Our voices got deeper. We got muscles and we got hair on our body and we got bigger and faster and stronger and puberty is all great for a guy. And that's the only time each ever changes. Now you think about from a woman's perspective, how traumatic puberty can be. I mean, suddenly boys are looking at her different. All the, the boys that she used to play sports with suddenly got way better and they left her behind. 
um, and, and the menstrual cycle and all the things that come with it. Then a woman's body changes every month. Every month she's got her menstrual cycle and there's a change. There's five days where she's not going to be able to have sex and all those things. And sometimes it comes with cramps and all that stuff. And then menopause. A woman has a, a marker in her, her life somewhere in her 50s where she can't have kids anymore. And she goes through a change of life that's pretty traumatic. This official thing. A guy 60 years old can still have kids. That has a marked effect on how a woman sees things and how she behaves. When a woman has sex, her perspective is different because for a man, sex in the natural has zero consequences. A man orgasms and he's gone. For a woman, every sexual encounter could be a life-changing event called pregnancy. You think that might have a little difference in how she perceives sex? Again, laws can change things, but within our inner core of who we are. So as a man, are you making yourself seem worthy of the guy that she wants to have sex with because you're still going to be there? And if she were to get pregnant, again, just in her psychosis, it doesn't matter if you're 70 years old and you're both past the menopause stage. It's, it's a psychosis there. Is she thinking, is she connecting with you that way? Are you the kind of man that she wants to follow, that she wants to be intimate with? Only you can answer that question. If you've been at a point where that thing hasn't been healthy, that there have been a lot, a lot, a lot of betrayal in marriage. There have been affairs. There's been pornography and sexual addiction, things that have said that are brutally hurtful. I would say to you right now, the most viable words in a marriage are not, I love you. Those are valuable, but the most viable words are, I am sorry. An apology, any apology, but in a marriage, especially an apology is saying what I did saying how it affected you and saying why it's not going to happen again. That's an apology. So it's not, I'm sorry. I was tired. No, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I was late to use an example from one of the past messages I gave. I was late, but there was traffic. Mm -mm. I was late. I didn't value your time the way I should have. I'm deeply sorry that you had to sit here while you had to wait on me. How dare I make you wait on me because your time is every bit as valuable as my time. And third, I'm going to make sure I leave 15 minutes early every time I have to meet you from now on to ensure I'm the first one here. So I'm the one waiting on you. Now that's an apology. Now that's a apology on a small thing. There may be some big things for you and there may be some big, big things to go through. Whatever it is that you need to do on your marriage on that regard, this is leadership now, men. I'm sorry is a powerful, powerful thing. And I, and a true apology, however that may be. And you may have had years, decades, of sexual misconduct, it's time to sit down and talk about how that, and it's going to be hard to do, man. But let me tell you something that's being a man, that's being a leader, that's taking accountability and responsibility for presenting your wife blameless and spotless to the heavenly father, the way Christ is going to present his wife, the church blameless and spotless to his heavenly father, the church certainly full of faults and your wife may be full of faults. But you worry about you, you do your responsibility within your marriage. So as part of that marriage then, who are we? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? You want to offer leadership, vision, empathy, and ambition to your wife. Leadership. We've talked about that quite a bit. I think we've, we've gotten that down. Empathy. Put yourself in her shoes. It's kind of the sexual conversation we're having right now too. How would I feel if I were her? How would I feel if I were in her situation? How would I have heard the words that just came out of my mouth if I were her, right? They're having a ma massive effect on your marriage. A lot of people, men and women, can have a double standard. 
well, we're all equals here. We have different roles. How would I feel if I was her? Ambition. Am I ambitious for my marriage? Like I'm ambitious for my business. Am I ambitious about making us as close as we possibly can be? Am I ambitious about listening to her? What matters a lot to her? Taking her to things that she loves, being a part of her life. You know, the, the, the old joke about guys having to go shopping with their wives. Well, and then, you know, moping around. Enjoy it. I mean, you, you got the choice. If you're there with her, be a part of it. Be a part of her. Suggest we go get a, a coffee or something and sit down and have a good conversation. Really listen. But be ambitious about your marriage. And, and, and also, the same goes for the other side. You know, when you want to sit and watch a football game and maybe she wants to watch it with you and she doesn't. My wife loves to come along when I'm watching football. Um, because she knows she can always get a back rub. So she plops back and plops in front of me on the beanbag chair and gets great shoulder rubs. And she always jokes and says, I love football. You know, after half an hour, she walks away. But it's a great time for us. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with any of that. And on that side, she doesn't sit there and talk to me the whole time while I'm trying to watch a football game. And she knows I communicate with her. I mean, he's a Oregon Ducks fan. So if I'm watching some football game, I don't care that much. We can chat. If it's the Oregon Ducks, I just glued in on the game, right? So go Ducks. So we see that if you're not married, um, this is fine. This is for you. This is helpful for you to know what kind of woman should you look for and what kind of man are you to, that you're, that she should look for. And as I always say to men who aren't married, well, I'm praying for a wife. And it's like, that's great. And you should be, and you should be actively looking for a wife. But are you the kind of man a woman should be looking for? Are you the kind of man that you would want your daughter to be married to? And so be that man, whether you're married or not married be the man that you'd want your daughter to be married to. I remember um, I was talking to my boys, you know, when they were in the middle of puberty about pornography. And uh, as we were discussing all that, and they were giving me the world's version of, that's eh, really not that bad, dad. I mean, what's the, why do you make such a big deal of it? And I said, well, how would you feel if I was looking at pornography? Oh, but you would never do that. Of course I wouldn't. But why, why would it bother you if I was, if it's not a big deal? Ah, uh, now suddenly empathy. How would you feel if I was treating your mother that way? If you knew I was looking at that garbage and then I was treating your mother out of what I saw in that garbage, their faces were horrified. It's the kind of conversation we have to have with our sons. No, I would never look up pornography and I would never treat your mother that way. And you guys respect me because of that. Now you want to be like me, then be like me. Don't let that seep into who you are. And my boys, thank the Lord. Uh, walked with the Lord and been completely pure, but that conversation helped to knock them out of that sort of the world's version of what's okay. So be the man that you would want your daughter to date. I hope that's helpful. I hope that's helpful in marriage. I hope that there's some nuggets in there that can really um, go a long way for you, uh, men and women, both listening and watching this, empathize with each other, be ambitious about your marriage, love each other and know the words, I'm sorry, man, are they powerful? Pretty powerful for your kids too. Thank you.